It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to FT Politics, our weekly discussion of UK politics at Westminster and beyond with me, Miranda Green. We will be joined by Sebastian Payne, political leader writer, your usual host, and by James Blitz, author of our daily Brexit briefing, to discuss the latest shenanigans at Westminster. And then by Jim Pickard, chief political correspondent, and by Paul Mason, the writer and campaigner, to discuss Labour's position. So, first of all, Seb and James, we're going to turn to another week of sort of frenzied activity on all sides in Parliament. Uh, a slew of amendments has been put down from all sides of the Brexit argument. Uh, it spans everyone from the ardent hard leavers and then the committed remainers on the other side and all shades of opinion in between, seemingly. And put in mind of that saying, if you're not confused by now, you're not paying attention. So, James, can you please shed some light on all this for us? Of all of these amendments that have been put down to be voted on on Tuesday, which ones matter and how do they actually change the probabilities of whether we're leaving on March the 29th? Well, the one that matters uh, more than all the others is the amendment that's been put down by the backbench Labour MP Yvette Cooper, together with backbench Conservative MP Nick Bowles. And what that does basically, and remember these are amendments to a statement that has been a very vague statement made by Mrs May about her way ahead, okay? This is not the second big attempt she's going to make to get her deal through. It's just a kind of procedural point. But the amendment that's put down by Yvette Cooper basically says this. When Mrs May comes back in February with a second attempt to get her deal through the Commons, if she fails, and if she has failed to get anything passed by February the 26th, then the House of Commons will automatically be required to have a vote on whether to ask for an extension of Article 50 of up to nine months. Now, that amendment is important because it is probably going to be backed by the Labour Party. It is probably going to be backed by a reasonably large number of Conservative MPs. And that means it's probably going to get through. It'll have a few more hoops and hurdles after that. But the bottom line is this. What it means is that the optics change in Westminster, away from Mrs May saying, if you don't pass my deal, we're going over the cliff on March the 29th, to if you don't pass my deal, the Cooper Amendment means that we could well be in the EU until the end of the year with an extended Article 50. And the net effect of all of that has been to be a very significant reassurance to financial markets. You've seen a big rise in the pound this week, up beyond $1.30. Outside Westminster, people are beginning to say, maybe no deal in any form is actually not going to happen. Because, Seb, obviously for a long time we've discussed here in this room and elsewhere that it's not that simple to, as they say, take no deal off the table because it's the kind of legal default for the country to leave deal or no deal on March the 29th. But this could, as James says, actually change the game at Westminster if the Cooper Amendment passes, could it not? 
Absolutely. And I've always taken the view that Parliament is sovereign and Parliament would find a way to stop a no-deal Brexit. We do know as a clear majority across the Conservative Party and including Labour MPs, SNP and Liberal Democrats who would not allow a no-deal Brexit to happen. And the question has really been how would that manifest itself? And this amendment that Yvette Cooper has produced, I think, has very skillfully done that. And it's very important what this amendment actually does because it's going to suspend this thing standing order 14 which is a historic principle in the house of commons that means that the government's business always takes priority so for one day only the government's business won't take priority and she will put forward this piece of legislation which as james said means if there's no deal by 26 of february then the government will have to request an extension of article 50. this does actually raise some big constitutional questions though because generally legislation is put forward by the government debated in both houses of parliament and then sent off to the palace for the Queen to put her signature on it. In this instance, the government will not be proposing this legislation and one assumes that if Yvette Cooper's amendment gets a majority in the Commons, then her bill to extend Article 50 would also get a majority. And I heard some interesting rumours at the top from Downing Street this week saying, well, if the Commons passes this bill and the House of Lords passes it, the Queen would really have no choice but to sign it. And it does pose a constitutional question of, Is the Queen going against her own government or is she going against the House of Commons? And either way, it's a nightmare for the palace. And I think it was very striking on Friday that we heard the Queen doing one of her very rare targeted political interventions saying, please let common sense prevail. James, the other question is that if the Cooper Amendment passes and it changes the terrain in such a fundamental way... What happens to the Prime Minister, Theresa May's strategic blackmail of the House of Commons, i.e. the fact that she's been saying for weeks now, my way or the highway, i.e. my deal is the only option to avoid a no deal. Does delaying the prospect of leaving fatally undermine this sort of blackmail that she's been trying to exert over MPs or not? Or does it just postpone the crisis? It's an interesting question. The Cooper Amendment is having a lot of effects, first of all, on a lot of people at Westminster, Okay, First of all, it's creating a huge division inside the Cabinet because, as you can see, Amber Rudd has come out and is basically saying we need to have a free vote on this Cooper Amendment because she is very clear that she doesn't want no deal to happen. And so she is, this weekend, leaving open whether she might resign if May continues with a current position, which is this is a whipped vote against the Cooper Amendment. So that's a problem. Then you've got a second thing that's happening, which is that the European Research Group, the people around Jacob Rees-Mogg, are beginning to say, hang on a tick. If we don't vote for the May deal when it comes back and she loses and the Cooper Amendment comes in, we could be in a situation where Brexit is delayed for at least another nine months, possibly, with lots of other ideas coming in, including possibly a second referendum. So suddenly you've got the effect that they are beginning to have this great rethink after the defeat on January the 15th about whether they might vote for the deal second time round after all. And then there's third, the effect on Mrs May herself. You're right that it does change things for her in a way that's not really very helpful because the Europeans are under pressure to try and give her a bit more on the backstop. 
so-called Irish backstop. I'm not sure they're going to give her very much. But of course, the Europeans are looking at the Westminster saga and saying, well, if we don't give her very much, she's going to lose that vote. And then we'll get into an extension of Article 50, which might see the British going down the second referendum route. So it's not very helpful for her in that regard. It is, however, helpful in the sense that more than anything else at Westminster, this is actually making the European research group, the hard Brexiters, the 107 who voted against her last time from the Tory benches, it's making them think again. Yes, it's very interesting that, isn't it? I mean, James, just briefly before I turn back to Seb, do you think there is any prospect of a free vote on the Cooper Amendment? Because this is what Amber Rudd is pushing for, but it would be very unusual. It's not impossible. I mean, as Amber Rudd was saying on Newsnight on Thursday night, things are very fluid. And the bottom line is that Mrs May really is once again in a corner. She's got cabinet ministers saying they might resign. She looks like she's going to lose this vote next Tuesday. And so I think over the next few days, I think there will be people in number 10 saying, what's the cost to us if we actually just concede the Cooper Amendment or don't have a whip vote and just get on to the next phase? Because in the end, we've lost this one. So where we'll be on Tuesday, I don't know. OK, interesting. Seb, I want to come back to you, if I may, because I want to talk about what James has raised, this idea that actually on the hard Brexit wing of the Tory party, the European research group Jacob Rees-Mogg and his pals, there is a perceptible softening. But I'm wondering, is it a kind of cosmetic softening only in the sense that the compromises that they now say that they would accept in order to back Mrs May's deal when she brings it back, are these at all deliverable? Well, that is the million-dollar question in British politics at the moment, because my reading of Westminster this week is that a lot of people are looking for ladders to climb down. I actually talked to someone from number 10 about this, and they said, it can't be a ladder because a ladder is a defeat. Think of it more as changing train tracks onto a different approach. So what you've seen going on here is that if no deal Brexit is not going to happen, as James was outlining just before, then the question is, it's either no Brexit or Mrs May's Brexit. And that's the calculation that people like Jacob Rees-Mogg have made. And they are therefore thinking, how can we change our mind and support this deal without it looking like a climb down? Now, Mr Rees-Mogg did an op-ed in a newspaper last weekend where he said Mrs May's deal is better than remaining. Now, if that's where the calculation goes post the Cooper Amendment that raised the question, will Jacob Rees-Mogg roll in behind the Prime Minister? He then had to backtrack from that party because his own supporters were saying, you've caved in, you've given in to the government and all the rest of it. But the more interesting thing, I think, is if you're going to get this deal through, it has to begin with the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, because until you get them back on board, then a lot of Eurosceptic Conservatives don't have the cover to change their minds. And last weekend, we know that Nigel Dodds, who's the DUP leader in Westminster and Arlene Foster, the leader of the party over in Belfast, they went and had dinner with Theresa May at Chequers. There was a bit of debate about whether it was a sleepover or not, but we do know there was certainly a dinner there. And no doubt this was being discussed. And what you saw from the DUP this week was a clear softening because they said before the backstop has to go. We cannot have any situation which treats Northern Ireland differently. In a staunch unionist, that's exactly what you'd expect. But now you've seen them saying, well, actually, we could accept a backstop as long as it's very clear time limited and it's very clear we could get out of it. They have definitely changed their position on that. But as you said, Miranda, this really comes back to what, if anything, Theresa May can get from Brussels. And this may be one for James 
things, because my understanding is Ollie Robbins, the Prime Minister's Chief Europe Advisor, has been drawing up a list of things to put to Brussels that could be used to make clear to Conservative MPs that this would be a way down. But the last thing I would say on this is there will be some irreconcilables who will never vote for Mrs May's deal. People who have spent 45 years waiting for this moment and no Brexit will ever be pure enough for them. And even if it's the backstop, then they'll find some other reason not to back the deal, whether it's the money or the lack of future trading terms or even the fact it's a deal at all. There are Conservative MPs who actively just don't want a deal and want to have their moment of sticking their fingers up across the English Channel. So I think that is where it is very interesting to look at the language of people like Philip Hammond, who's saying, yes, EU, you need to give way and give us some help here. And I think for that to happen, Theresa May needs to prove to Brussels that whatever suggestions she puts to them can actually win favour, because as you can expect, Brussels is getting pretty exasperated at this whole business. Well, that's right. So, James, if May manages in some way to bracket off those irreconcilables who will never, ever vote for her deal and are actually perfectly relaxed about no deal, but bring the rest of the hardline Brexiters on the right of the Tory party to a position where they could accept a compromise and back her deal. What is the EU going to say? Because there have started to be, over the last few days, I mean, one's heard voices from Davos at the World Economic Forum, other European leaders really sounding quite sick of this now. And in order even to get this delay to Article 50, of course, Britain would have to ask for it and it would have to be delivered by all those European countries as well as Brussels. Do you think we are going to get, A, any of the compromises that the May government needs on the deal on Northern Ireland and the border? And B, if it came to it and we asked for that Article 50 extension, would they deliver it? Because there have been hints that it would only be granted in a kind of exceptional situation. Well, on the first point, um, it's still looking very difficult indeed. I mean, I think there is very little in the way of positive signs to show Mrs May that you know the withdrawal agreement, which is the sort of thumping big legal text, is going to be in any way reopened and that there's any prospect at all of a revisiting of the backstop in, in any of the forms that the hard Brexiters are looking for. So, and that's I mean, the crunch point, And that isn't is it? the crunch point. Yeah. I mean, there's always been the talk in Europe, we can have discussions around the political declaration, which is basically the long-term future for the trade relationship. But as far as the backstop is concerned, it's still looking very difficult indeed. I mean, there are countries which talk with different nuances. And we've heard Philip Hammond talking about how the French, for example, are particularly strong in saying they don't want to reopen anything. But the bottom line is that the Irish themselves really have not opened the way in any way, as far as I can see, to revisiting that backstop. So it's very hard. Then there is the question that you ask about the extension. The position has always been up till now that if the British spell out what they want to do with the extension, i.e. hold a second referendum or hold a general election or make some kind of change to the political declaration that, say, takes us down the Norway Plus route or put through additional legislation after passing a deal, then the Europeans will say yes. I think, though, that as we get very close to March the 29th, if the British basically say on the back, for if the Cooper Amendment went through all its phases and the British said, look, we've lost May's deal, there's only a month to go, we've passed this, I suspect the Europeans probably would because the Europeans don't want no deal either. I would say one last thing, however, if I can, which is that even if the Europeans give a lot, 
The numbers for Mrs May to pass this deal really are very, very difficult indeed. 118 Conservatives voted against her on January the 15th. 11 of those were pro-Europeans like Dominic Grieve. They're not going to change their mind about May's deal. So she has to win all of the 107 Conservative Brexiters that she lost. And she has to win the 10 DUP. If she gets both of those, she will have a majority of four. She'll win 319, 315, okay? So if there are these irreconcilables, she's going to have to find votes from somewhere else, and that's on the Labour side, and we still don't know how that will go. It's extraordinary times. Thank you. We turn now to the fascinating and sometimes equally hard-to-read subject of Labour and Brexit. I'm joined by Jim Pickard, hot foot from the lobby at the House of Commons, and I'm delighted to be joined by our guest today, Paul Mason, the writer and campaigner who has been kind enough to come in and explain to us what is going on in the Red Camp. Paul, thanks very much. We need your help. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs May is running down the clock as a way to blackmail the House of Commons into backing her agreement. What is Jeremy Corbyn up to? Well, Jeremy Corbyn is balancing between two kind of existential wings, both of the PLP and his party. There is that wing that really wants to get Brexit over with. I mean, not at any price, but has never been exercised for or against it and is very much wanting to fight the next election and fight the local council elections and any other elections that come on the basis of left v right. And interestingly, that includes people on the Labour left and quite a lot of people on the what you might call the old Labour centre. But on the other side of the party, there are, and I would say this is where you get that 80% of the membership who identify with Remain in recent polls. There are people for whom, as it were, the incipient culture war, where progressive, liberal, socially liberal values matter to them, has become bound up with the question of resisting Theresa May's deal, which is the party united on that, and if nothing else works, if we can't get an election, going for the second referendum. So, no, Corbyn's just basically trying to, as party manager and with his party managers juggle those pressures. There are pressures within the shadow cabinet, within the front bench, and most definitely within constituency Labour parties. So that's the problem he faces. And where he is right now, I would say, is the whole Labour machine is very much gearing up for a general election. Because until the DUP signalled Friday that they might support May, it was looking pretty likely that May would hit a dead end. You get through the Cooper amendments, you get the Grieve amendment, and May's got nowhere else to go other than to walk out onto the tarmac in front of Downing Street and say, right, guys, election. So if you're the opposition, you have to take that seriously. And I'd say the last time I had any official contact with Labour, that is where they were. So, Jim, there have been people suggesting that there is a potential solution to this kind of Brexit impasse, which is that Corbyn gives May what she wants, backing for the deal, which is, of course, only step one of Brexit, and May gives Corbyn a general election. Does that really work for either of them? I think the problem with that is, firstly, for Labour to fall behind the deal after having said for months on end that it's not acceptable would be really, really hard for Labour to do. It would annoy Brexit-supporting Labour voters, possibly, and it would definitely infuriate and anger those 80% that Paul were talking about who are the people who want Brexit just to end or, or be reversed. And then also from May's perspective, I mean, I do agree with Paul that she might end up just being boxed into it, but 
the Tory party really, really doesn't want an election. They certainly don't want an election with Theresa May in charge. Those memories are really fresh of what happened in 2017 when she was put in front of the country and the country didn't like her by the end of it or really respect that much by the end of it. And when you look at sort of the donors not coming forward with money for the Conservative Party, which was our main story on FT.com this morning, they don't seem to be that battle ready. And of course, polling... Um, There was a story in The Sun, I think, yesterday saying that the Tories' own internal polling was saying that Labour would win. I interviewed John McDonnell briefly earlier in the week and I said, well, what does Labour's private polling say? And he said basically the same thing. And he said it's consistent with the public polling, which is that only YouGov is giving the Tories a big lead. And a lot of other pollsters do have Labour ahead. And we all recall what happened in 2017, which is that the more people saw of Corbyn or maybe the more they saw of the Labour manifesto and the more they saw of May, things improved for Labour everything's possible. I don't think people want it. So it's really interesting, isn't it, the precedent of what happened in 2017, because when May called that election that she said she wouldn't call, she tried to sell it as a Brexit election. And of course, it got completely out of control. And you can't tell the electorate what to vote on, right? So if it opens up to a general election, the way is clear for Labour to turn it into something that's not a Brexit election. However, Paul, isn't there a fundamental problem this time round, if that's where we get to, that you have got that 80% of the Labour membership who are really angry about Brexit and really angry with the leadership on this question? Well, they're not angry with the leadership. They're expressing forbearance towards the leadership, in fact. The problem is that this election, if May calls it, will be about Brexit. And I, personally, as a Labour-supporting journalist, I'm at the point where I think that the moral authority of the 2016 referendum is evaporating. If it can't get through Parliament, if no form of Brexit is acceptable to the Brexiteers, it's not the job of Liberals and Progressives and Socialists to do the job of the xenophobes for them if they can't do it themselves. Now, that's my position. I think it's fair to say it's not the front bench position of Labour. They are most likely to go into a second election or new election with the position of we'll try to do our deal, which after all is significantly different. It is customs union and it is what they're now calling dynamic regulatory alignment with the single market. What does that mean? The single market rules change, our rules change. You stay in moving alignment. You stay in moving alignment with the single market. No, that's significantly different. And they think that that, possibly plus the promise of a second referendum to ratify that deal if done, should be enough to replicate the tactical voting that took place in 2017. They might be right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Would your money be that being what's in the Labour manifesto? Because, of course, if we have a general election, it'll be very interesting to see how Mm. both main parties hedge the manifesto because there's not unity on either side, Jim. Yeah, and at the moment we have this slightly bizarro position, which is hard for Labour to explain themselves, whereby they seem to be saying if there's a general election, then they're pro-Brexit. And if there's a referendum, then possibly cough, cough, or probably they'd be Remain, which it sort of makes logical sense, but it does possibly look a bit peculiar when you look at it very closely. Someone was positing to me yesterday that you could have a situation where Labour ends up doing what the Tories did in 2016, which is just let people do their own thing and campaign on either side. It would sustain that position of kind of inverted commas, constructive ambiguity and playing to one part of the country in a different way to the other, which people think it's cynical, they don't love it, but but it's a kind of damage limitation position. Yeah, you absolutely. You do that in a second referendum, but you can't do it in an election. You know, because Labour... Yeah, agreed. Its big problem, or its big strength and problem, is that it is democratic. And even though there is no way for the membership to push Corbyn any further towards second referendum, it is there as a default, and it is believed in, I believe, by Corbyn. But the problem is, in an election, you've got the close five meeting. 
Clause 5 meeting is there in the Constitution. It's the NEC, it's the Shadow Cabinet, and it's parts of the PLP. It's a weird meeting. And I couldn't see, you know, I could easily see a majority emerging from that meeting for Remain in the manifesto. But here's the interesting thing. When you look back at what happened in 2017, and Paul might correct me here, but someone was talking me through this yesterday. What happened was that Labour's first draft of the manifesto got leaked to the Telegraph and the Mirror, which a lot of people think it was designed to damage Mm. Labour because it looks so kind of 1970s and backwards and very socialist, which obviously turned out to be quite a popular manifesto. But anyway, that was leaked and therefore everything was already out in the open when they had that Clause 5 meeting and it just became a kind of discussion of what Andrew Fisher, the head of policy, had already written. It'd be really interesting to see whether this time it is a more democratic process because it wasn't that democratic. There was a bit of bumping is what you're saying last time. Whichever whichever side did it, the outcome was that it A, electrified the situation and B, Corbyn suddenly wasn't a hounded politician. He was a politician who'd made a dramatic gesture. But this time around, you know, there's no way that process would happen without being used by both sides in the sense that if there were an election called on Wednesday morning uh, in the coming week, people like me would be straight out there with a resolution to Labour Party branches saying we should fight this election bravely on the slogan of remain, reform, end neoliberalism in Europe, transform Europe with a Corbynist commissioner to you know slap down the far right. We could make that case perfectly, and it would be out there like a rabbit running around a track. You know, uh, within seconds of the election being called. And then we get into very fascinating questions of things like you know, Len McCluskey, who doesn't want a second referendum. Does he speak for over a million Unite members or not? He has multiple places on the NEC and in the National Policy Forum. Other figures as well, how powerful the shadow cabinet be in that equation versus, for example, the constituencies. And you you get into some very interesting questions of how democratic in the pure sense Labour's internal machine is. I mean, when you look at the shadow cabinet, It's quite interesting how few of them do want a second referendum when you think about it. Yeah, no, that's what I wanted to come back to, actually. Do you think, Jim, that there's a way in which the People's Vote campaign, as successful as it has been in turning this into a realistic prospect and a realistic option, do you think it might have slightly peaked? Because there were some very strange things that happened this week with a kind of splitter element of the People's Vote, sort of talking about the amendment not going through and how there wasn't sufficient parliamentary backing. You know, given that the Labour front bench isn't that keen, is the prospect of a second referendum receding or does it just remain as this sort of default should should all other things fail? I I hear your point that there has been some squabbling and they've been squabbling for months about when to time the people's vote, second referendum amendment. They were having that argument back in December as well. And there is this sort of sub-argument of them arguing with the Norway people. It does look very messy. We should bear in mind, though, that the 2016 out campaign was really messy and they all hated each other, and yet they still won. And when you look at where the inverted commas people vote was a year ago, they were nowhere at all. And so they have, to be fair to them, come a, a hell of a long way since then. But yes, they've got to this point, and they now have to persuade Jeremy Corbyn himself, who really doesn't want to go down that route, most of the shadow cabinet, and also Lotto, the leaders, leader of the um, opposition's office, where people coined the phrase the four M's this week, which, bear with me, Seamus Milne, Len McCluskey, Andrew Murray, and Carrie Murphy. So all very senior people, surnames starting with M, who are saying to Jeremy Corbyn, let's resist this. And I mean, Paul, how many senior pro-Corbyn 
shadow ministers do you think would, would like a second referendum? Well, the interesting thing is they're all publicly signed up to the resolution. And the resolution is ambiguous, but it leads almost like a sort of um, Tetris game eventually to having to support a second referendum. That if you can't get an election and if May's on the rocks and the Grieve Amendment goes through, the Cooper Amendment goes through, so that Parliament's taken control, in the end, something has to happen. And I think that for people like me who do support a second referendum, it's the idea of convincing people, fine, go through all the other little Tetris moves you want to do. But in the end, if you want to stop a no-deal Brexit that collapses the economy, at some point, this trigger is going to have to be pulled. And if you put it like that, I think it's actually the, the opponents of that line are a minority uh, in the shadow cabinet. And it's not just a shadow cabinet here we're talking about. The shadow front bench is quite significant, the junior ministers. But I think in the end, it will take several more moves in the game to get there. And Labour is not in control of the game. It's Theresa May who has the parliamentary authority to pull the plug, to prorogue if she wants to. There's all these kind of things that could happen. In the end, I think the only thing that's going to stop a second referendum is in the end May getting her deal through Parliament. And that may happen. I mean, it's sometimes said, Paul, that Jeremy Corbyn and the people around him, perhaps it is as limited as the four M's uh, that Jim has described and those elements inside the shadow cabinet and the, the front bench that you've described as well, but that they are relaxed about Brexit, but they're not remotely re relaxed about being put in a situation where they are then blamed for Brexit by having to do it. I would put it differently. We're talking here about people who have lived their lives in the Labour movement and are highly effective people and, in fact, saved Corbyn in that 2016 crisis where he was struggling to find people to go on the front bench and gave rigour to the project such that it was able to fight from a 25% poll rating to a 40% poll rating. These are people who can do things. And the thing that they fear most of all, I would say, is losing an election, whenever that comes. Twice, we should say, because they didn't yes, actually they didn't to win, win last time. Yeah. But, but to be honest, I, they were and I was highly satisfied with the performance given the starting point. And I think that if they were to be told, and it's been reported that they've been told, that having your fingerprints on Brexit loses you an election, that's a, a very powerful argument, not just with the people around Jeremy, but also with the trade union leaders, with the uh, party officials, that's a very powerful argument. We have to remember, we're doing a politics podcast. One of the big political facts of the current situation is the anti-political mood in the country. And Labour is well aware that it could lose from that. And it has... It, the point of Corbynism for people like me was to gain from it because I think there is a justifiable anti-political mood. I think the political class, the business class is at odds with what the people want. So the, the idea that suddenly you're just another politician playing games plays really badly among the circles you're describing. And they are well aware that they do not want to be, end up as being tarred with the brush of having delivered Brexit for the British ruling class. And Jim, isn't that <clears throat> also a problem for the putative Remain campaign in another referendum? on Brexit, that you're seen as the political class asking people to give them the right answer this time when they delivered the wrong answer in 2016. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the gamble, isn't it, for the Labour Party if there's another referendum of whether you go out, all out remain and you offend and infuriate an awful lot of people, Midlands, North, post-industrial heartlands, just to sort of grossly generalise. Uh, and yet you do sweep up a load of former Green and Lib Dem voters on the other side of the equation. I mean, it is a sticky mess. You can see why they don't want to go down that road. I think going back to Paul's point earlier, there's an interesting sub-theme here of who takes responsibility and who is remembered in history for various different decisions. And it's fascinating how it's always the government of the day. It's not the opposition. So the Iraq war, the Tories 
backed it to the hilt, and yet it's something that's stuck with new Labour. You take David Cameron pushing through gay marriage, people forget that actually more of his own MPs voted against it than for it, and yet it, it becomes, in the common history, a Tory policy. Yeah, it has that branding. Of yeah. Whoever's, yeah. Look, I think I just want to say, one, if the Conservatives push through a deal and then there's an election on the back of it, then I think that it will be a no-brainer for Labour to play a voter suppression strategy on the 61% of Leave voters who want a no-deal. You were given vassal state status by Jacob Rees-Mogg, Theresa May, Boris Johnson. They all voted for it in the end. We didn't. Um, it's quite an effective electoral strategy whenever it comes. But going back to Jim's point about the North, the Midlands, etc., one of the things I'm really trying to do is to explain to people, this is these places are not monolithic. What there isn't is a political centre in those places. You will find pubs, the, the, the proverbial Weatherspoons, in which it's UKIP in one corner and momentum in another corner. And, and this culture war between working class people, it's not middle class working class, working class people, has actually been going on for some time. What's missing is the Guardian reader. Now, actually, if you look at a politician like Mary Creer, who stood in for the leadership in 20, I think 2016 or 2015, one of the two. Mary stole stood for the election in 2015. She's the Wakefield MP. Jeremy went to Wakefield field to do the let's unite Britain and move on speech. Her constituency is 66% leave and yet she is supporting Remain in the People's Vote. And I think that tells you that somebody with a political ear to the ground in a place like that, that it's complicated. As it says on Facebook, it's complicated. There are working class people on both sides. They are viscerally almost committed to their positions on Remain and, and Leave. And the question in a place like Wakefield is, can you maintain the rough 49% that somebody, somebody like that MP has, despite the 66% vote for Leave? No, exactly. And, and what we saw in 2017 is that it was meant to be the Brexit election, you know, and every day on the radio, it's Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. The public is really bored of it, sick of it, angry about it. And if people start raising other issues like schools and hospitals and investment and all the rest of it, you know, it is conceivable that Labour could, in a general election situation, do pull off the same trick again. And with even more resentment about Brexit going badly, so the Tories don't even have a very strong line about, well, at least we're sorting Brexit, because clearly they are struggling to. So we've discussed the reasons why the Conservative Party is really not working up an appetite for a general election right now, but whereas perhaps the Labour Party really is. You know, many decades ago, Harold Wilson's cabinet spoke of a referendum as the life raft that might actually allow the electorate to take responsibility in the end for the decision on whether to go into Europe and, and stay in in the 70s. Paul, you were saying, I thought that was very interesting that you said that a general election doesn't provide the same sort of cover that a referendum could do, and possibly for both parties. But do you do you really see Jeremy Corbyn at the forefront of a Remain campaign? Well, they wouldn't make the election about that. They'd say, look, we have our plan on Brexit. You're sick of it. Our plan on Brexit is a very soft Brexit. It could easily be sold as Norway minus. No, and no, I'm talking way, about a referendum. Uh, if we okay. have a referendum campaign. If we, have a, if we have a referendum campaign, no, I think the campaign will be, it, look, the current People's Vote campaign and the other one, Best for Britain, will have to both dissolve. And they'll have to leave behind, I'm afraid, Tony Blair uh, and some of the people around him. Down the line from Davos. Yeah. Well, look, the down the line from Davos is... is 
is is is one person, but t- but Tony Blair is another. I doubt most people know who Roland Rudd is. But the campaign for Remain Two Zero, and I've been involved in this with the the left of the Labour Party. We are just basically saying you need a different kind of thing. If it happens, we need to start preparing for it now. It might have to say one message in the north of England, another message in Scotland, another in Wales, etc., another in Bristol, and we need a professional team to do that. But we're not even there yet. But no, I wouldn't expect Corbyn to go on the front foot for that. Corbyn even has party policy he can't break that says he cannot go on a cross-party Remain platform. That's why he didn't last time. But you don't you don't need to dissolve the sort of people's vote slash tentative new centrist party, whatever you want to call them. You could have them doing their campaign. Labour could do a totally different campaign just in the way that we were talking about earlier, Leave.eu mm. and Vote Leave had very different messages, certainly at the start. It worked very people well. People thought it was yeah. chaos. Actually, they were mm. just soaking up. They were mo- mopping up exactly with different it's, messages, it, and sort of it is actually creatively did work for them and could work for Remain next time if mm. there is one. So you've managed, Paul, to make me slightly less depressed about the prospect of another referendum campaign, which is quite a feat, I'll tell you, given how I feel about it right now. Thank you both very much for shedding some light on this complicated situation. I'm Miranda Green, and that was the FT's Politics Podcast. You've been listening to Sebastian Payne, James Blitz, Jim Pickard, and our guest, Paul Mason. My thanks to all of you and to our producer, Caroline Grady. And next week, Seb, your regular host, will be back from his travels and back in this chair. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe on all the usual channels. And if you are not already an FT subscriber, do visit ft.com forward slash offer for our latest subscription offers. 